Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is May the 22nd. Our scripture today is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my inequity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will deliver in the sacrifices, you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Amen. I am really typically good at compartmentalizing, meaning that uh, I'm, I'm really good at uh, taking certain things in my life and putting little boxes around them and keeping them separate. Something I learned as a kid who got bullied a lot and then something I learned at working in a restaurant because otherwise I'd be always angry at home. Sadly, one of the side effects of me doing this is I don't always consider what I'm gonna be preaching on what Sunday. I kind of just look at the liturgical calendar and say, okay, well, I've got Easter here, I've got Pentecost here, I have got six Sundays I need to fill. Let's do a six-part series about prayer. I want to talk about prayer. And so I pull out all the little things I want to talk about, and I put them one Sunday after the other in the way that makes the most sense without considering where they might fall. That happened this week. I wasn't considering the story I was going to have to talk about, 
and I wasn't considering that it fell on Sophia's birthday. So this is my warning that I am going to be talking about the story of Bathsheba today. And if you aren't aware, the story of Bathsheba includes the death of a child, along with, there's another way to put it, a rape. It also happened to be that this Sunday just fell at the end of a very busy week, and on a week that I would have procrastinated anyway on writing this sermon. And so when I got home on Saturday night with the full intentions, I was going to sit there and pop out about a thousand words to really get me on direction this morning. I discovered that there was no power in my house. <laughs> so it came on kind of late, and at that point I was already, already not going to write, and I knew it. So, yeah, that's where I'm at this morning. But let's start at the beginning. David has been popping up a lot. And as I said, we reason that David pops up a lot in these prayers that are hard to say is that David is David. He's not a prophet who is trying to get us to live our best lives or warning us about what we're doing. He's not a historian who is telling us some story from history he is not a letter writer trying to tell us how to apply God's world, Jesus' teachings specifically to our lives. He's not, he's not like Proverbs or he's teaching us lessons. He is just a guy. Just a guy who deals with the problems in his life by writing music. He is the original emo band. I heard at least one chuckle out there, which means at least someone knows what emo is. Anyway. So we get David raw. We get David dealing with his life in the moment. We get David struggling. Struggling not only with the world around him, but the world that he is creating. That's why David keeps coming up again and again and again when we talk about prayer. Because we hear David's honest prayers. And even this one, it's a part of scripture, but you know what? I admit it is not my favorite. And I'll get to that later. Remind me if I forget there is a reason why it's not. So, real quick overview for everyone, just so we're on the same page. David, shepherd boy, who is hired to play music for Saul. Saul, the first king of the unified nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. But he doesn't come to prominence until he steps onto the battlefield and slays Goliath, the nine-foot-tall Philistine. After that, he becomes one of Saul's main generals and leaders of men, and he marries into Saul's family. He marries Michal, or Michael. I'm not sure. It's M-I-C-H-A-L. I think I said the exact same thing last week or the week before. I don't remember. Still don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, he becomes best friends with Jonathan, 
They are so close. They consider themselves closer than brothers. They consider each other like the same person in two different bodies. That's how close they are. Of course, Saul sees the danger of having this young hero in his court, married into his family, thinks he's going to try and overthrow him, so he tries to kill David. David runs. David lives in the wilderness. We already told that story just a week ago or so when David doesn't kill Saul, despite being given the chance. And then we see, and then going beyond that story, David goes and lives in Philistine. He actually becomes a subject to a Philistinian king. And he tells the Philistinian king, yeah, I'm attacking Israel, just like you asked me, when he's actually attacking other people and saying, you know, oh, they're, they're Israelites. No. He also meets a, a woman named Abigail. Just to know that Abigail becomes his second wife. Um, because at this point, anyway... Mikkel's gone. Mikkel's been married off to another man. But Abigail becomes his second wife. She's, she's a brilliant businesswoman. There's a whole story around that. Well, he's out raiding one day, and he returns to the town that the Philistines had given him, where all of, all of their families were living. At this point, the men had all brought their wives and their children to live with them in the wilderness and then moved them to this new town in Philistine. And so they return to this town, and they're gone. They have been abducted by another raiding party from one of these other uh, tribes that, that he's been fighting. So he goes, and he finds them, and he defeats them, and he brings them all back. It's a great victory. And as they're celebrating, a man runs into their, into their town. This man has a bag, and inside the bag are some bracers, the metal bands here, and I, I don't remember all. I think it might have been bracers and a helmet or whatnot. And the man explains that there had been a battle between the, is, the king of Israel and the Philistines, and the king of Israel is dead. And that he, uh, that he is dead, along with his son Jonathan, and that he personally was the one who slew them. Now, you remember we talked a couple weeks ago or last week about how David refused to raise a hand against God's anointed king, whether he was hunting him or not. Well, you might get the idea of exactly how David felt about this man who claimed to have killed Saul and Jonathan. So he had the guy executed. You do not raise a hand against God's anointed one. David lives by his standards. He lives by this code. You follow God's law. You are respectful to the way God has ordered things. You do not overstep your bounds. Well, long story short, David becomes king of Judah and Simeon, I think, maybe another tribe, but there's a war with Benjamin leading the other side. That's Saul's group following one of Saul's other sons. But that man is also assassinated. Oh, by the way, Saul didn't actually, was not actually killed by anyone. Saul commits suicide on the battlefield when he realizes he'll be captured. So the man lied and got himself killed for it. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so Saul's other son who becomes king 
um, is assassinated by some servants who bring his head to David, which again, do not kill people and bring them to David. It is a bad idea because you end up executed because that's what happened. But the other tribes all fall in line now. They join David, and they are again the unified kingdom of Israel. And David begins a new set of campaigns. First, he takes Jerusalem, making it his new capital. And then he moves out and he takes lands around him. He expands Israel to the size, well, to a size even larger than what God had originally promised them. Beyond that, he also takes the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and he brings them to Jerusalem. He wants to build God a temple and God says, it's okay, don't worry about it. You are a man of action and war, but you will have a son one day who instead of being a man of action and war will be a man of law and order, of wisdom, and he will be the one to build this temple for me. But David is living at the zenith of his life. This is the high point. He has everything he could want. Michal is back with him. He has Abigail. He has his other wives. He's got multiple children. He's living in a palace in the finally defeated Jerusalem. It's his now. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel. Well, it kind of been there, but now it's the center again. It's the center of worship. He is living in a palace. His military is one of the strongest forces in the lands. He has managed to spread out. He has unified the 12 tribes in a way they have never been unified before and will never be unified again. That's the thing when you hit the zenith. A zenith is the high point. And once you reach the high point, you have two choices. You either stay steady or you go down. He went down. Picture it, if you will. It's dusk. The sun is going down and the temperature is starting to drop. Perhaps it had been a very hot day, but low humidity. I know that's hard to think of on a day like this, but it's low humidity. And as the sun goes down, the temperature is quickly dropping into a comfortable zone. Well, what do you do? You go outside, you go sit on the patio, enjoy a glass of wine after a hard day's labor, and look out and admire God's beauty. And and he had a special place to do that. He had his patio on the palace, up on the roof. And there he could look out and see Jerusalem laid out before him. He could look out over the valley below, seeing God's beautiful green promised land. He had everything he could ever want. And he got there because he was patient and he allowed God to lead him where he should be. Everything he could want. And then he looks down. There it is. That was the edge. Did you feel it? We just went over. It's starting to go downhill. He looks over the edge and he sees someone else enjoying the night air. It's a beautiful young woman taking a bath. Now, this young woman we all know is Bathsheba. And 
part of me wanting to talk about this story, though it's being an uncomfortable one to talk about. I'm glad we don't have any like junior hires here today. This makes it easier. <laughs> is that so often Bathsheba is painted in this very specific light. You ever look at like an old Dutch master's work or, you know, Renaissance or even before that, you often will see Bathsheba, you know, bathing, looking into a mirror, how beautiful she is. You know, their, their attempt to let us know that she is a flawed person. She is vain. She is, as we will later, you know, she is a, a Delilah or a Jezebel. You know, the character that leads the hero astray. To be fair, Ahab was never the hero. But anyway, that's Jezebel. Because more of a Delilah. The hero will be led astray by this beautiful femme fatale. That's what we like to add to it. Because we want to think of David as the hero. But let's look at what the Bible actually tells us. He looks down and he sees her bathing. And mind you, it was a private area. Probably the only person in all of Jerusalem who could see her was David because he was up higher than everyone else. So he looks down, he sees her, and he thinks she's beautiful. He calls a servant, who is that? And he goes, that is Delilah, the daughter of, I think his name is Iliam, the wife of um, Uriah. Now, Uriah is an interesting character. We don't know a lot about him, but we do know one, two little things. Two little things we can pull out. First off, he's called Uriah the Hittite. And if you're thinking, wait, what tribe does the Hittites belong to? They don't. The Hittites were a people that lived in what's modern-day south-central-eastern Turkey. The Hittites were an amazingly powerful military at one time. They are the people who introduced iron to this part of the world. They were the first ones to craft iron weapons and iron chariots and whatnot, which between iron and bronze, iron is a huge step up. I mean, I, I know we've got some people in here who have used hammers and whatnot. Imagine doing that with, with a, you know, a hammer or a plow or anything made of bronze. That's a soft metal. Sure, it's harder than wood, but not a lot. You have to sharpen a lot. Anyway, so he is called the Hittite. He is a non-Hebrew. He is not Israelite. He is not a child of, of Jacob. But he has this weird name, Uriah. Now, Uriah is not a Hittite name. And I'm not saying that because I know anything about the Hittite language. It's because we know it's a Hebrew name. It translates to, Yahweh is my light. Not God is my light, Yahweh. Or what we call the uh, tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H. We pronounce it Yahweh, but it's not really a word that you can say. So we know that he's a Hittite by birth, but he has found his way to God. He has found his way. He is an early proselyte. He has decided to become Jewish, well, Hebrew. He has undertaken all the rites. 
He has even changed his name to reflect his new faith. He has walked away from the gods of his ancestors and has decided to follow this David. Not only does he decide to follow this David, he has been with David. He is what's called a mighty man. That doesn't mean he's like mighty mouse. There's a joke for those who are a little older than me. Now, a mighty man was, was a group of men that served as kind of a special force within David's military. They, they served as generals and captains, but they also served as, G, as uh, David's special bodyguard and advisors. They also served kind of like what we call knights errant. Think uh, Arthurian legend, which, yes, Arthurian legend is heavily based on the story of David. The difference is he has knights of the round table instead of mighty men. But you would send them out. Hey, I need this thing fixed. You, Uriah, go take care of it. And Uriah would go take care of it, along with any of the other, any of the other mighty men that were sent. So he is not just another servant, but he is one of David's main supporters, one of the men who has stood by David in battle after battle after battle. You know, just a little bit before, when, when David lost all of the women and children from that village, you know what? One of those men that was fighting for his wife was probably Uriah looking for Bathsheba. He was there all along. I also like to remind you, as I said, his name means Yahweh is my light. But David looks down and he sees her. And this is exactly how it reads. Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him. He slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. That's it. That's all we know about Bathsheba. She'll appeal later where she's going to do everything she can to make sure Solomon is on the throne. But at this point, this is all we know about her. A young woman. Put, her, put your feet in her shoes for a minute. Imagine how frightening this is. You live in an autocracy. There's one guy who can pretty much do whatever he wants. Knock on the door. It's some of his guards. They say, come with us, the king wants to see you. What choice do you have? They take you to his bedroom. They tend you in. What choice do you have? Even if you want to say no, can you really say no? It's a rape. David rapes her. That's a pretty big step down off that zenith. David messes up big time. And there's a consequence. She is pregnant. So he has to hide it. And so he, he goes, you know what? Um, I need an update on the battle. Send Uriah here. I want an update. Uriah's at a battlefield. He comes. 
Your king, my king, you know, we're, we're doing well. We're still working really hard. Haven't cracked through the wall yet. Oh, you're doing great. You're doing great. You're right. You know what? Why don't you go down and spend some time with your wife tonight before you head back off to the battle? Uriah, though, Uriah follows the rules. Uriah follows the rules of God. And one of those being is that while you are during in battle phase, even if he's home, he's still part of that battle. He's going back. You abstain. No, 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 my king. I cannot do that while my brothers sleep out in the battlefield. I must abstain and I will be with her when I'm done. Just go to your wife. David wakes up the next morning and there's Uriah laying outside of his door, guarding his king. So David writes a letter to Joab, his nephew and head general, basically saying, send Uriah to the place with the heaviest fighting and then tell the other men to separate themselves from him. Essentially, leave him a sitting duck. Joab obeys his king. Uriah is left a sitting duck, and he is killed. And so David is, after a suitable amount of mourning time, able to take on Bathsheba as a wife. Oddly enough, he doesn't see anything wrong with this. <laughs> it has gone to his head. He had that code of honor. This is the way we do things. We follow God's way, and God will provide when things are meant to come. We do not reach out and take. We only defend and follow God's way. I did not become king because I killed Saul, because I led a campaign against him. He became king because God gave him the crown. But now he's reaching out and taking, taking from a man whose name is God is my light. Just as David steps out of the light. He has everything he could have wanted. He decided he wanted a little more. Things don't go well, as you might guess. There's this guy named Nathan. I think I even told this story another week, did I? About the lamb? Maybe. He tells a story about a rich man who has everything, who sees a poor man's lamb and thinks, ooh, that looks tasty. So he steals the poor man's lamb and eats it. And David goes, well, that's terrible. We should have that man executed. And Nathan's like, if you, if you couldn't see that, it was, uh, really? Really, David? I think you should be executed. Really? <laughs> David then realizes what he has done, and he prays to God. This is the 51st Psalm. This is when that 51st Psalm appears. He realizes, and this is the reason for not liking the 51st Psalm altogether, 
Because he says, I have sinned against you alone, O God. I think Uriah might have had a reason to be upset too. I think, uh, I think Bathsheba would have had a reason to be upset too. Nathan pronounces the punishment for him. This is the part that I really wish I hadn't picked it for this Sunday, but hey. Bathsheba's child gets sick and dies. That is his punishment. Got to tell you, that one was going through my head a lot last year. I don't believe it's the connected. But man, it's still hard to read. Anyway. It's the moral of this story. It's pretty simple. So often, we get confused between what we have accomplished by our own hand and what God has accomplished for us. The Bible reminds us again and again and again that we we accomplish nothing except through the grace of God. That yes, we can put as much work as we want into something, but in the end, it's ultimately up to God that we get things. I know yesterday I talked about gardening as we were thinking about our sister Mary Ann. And, and this still applies. You know, you cannot force a seed to sprout. You cannot force a vegetable to grow. You cannot force a fruit to appear. You cannot make it sweet. You have to rely on God in the end. The danger with with success, whatever that success is in our lives, is that we often come to believe that we have achieved it by ourselves and that we can have anything we want then. And that's what David thought. He could do anything he wanted. And when he realized what he had done wrong, he was broken. He had failed and he knew it. That's why this is a dangerous prayer. Because for all of us, we all at some time start to believe in our own power. Not in the positive way. There is a positive level of that. Everything is in extremes. But at one point, we go too far from just pride into arrogance. And so David prays, break me of this arrogance. And the only way that I really know of to break someone of arrogance is to really, really break them. For David, it was realizing he is no longer the golden boy of God. It's the loss of his child as well. I know I've been arrogant. Everyone is at one point or another. We all think we know everything or about something in particular. We all think we know better than everyone else in some subject or another. 
or that we know the right way. I mean, that's just turning on the news and watching politicians. You think you know the right way because obviously they don't. Sometimes we go too far. So can we ask God to correct us? Can we ask God to reach into our lives and make it obvious that we are walking down the wrong path? Can we ask God to break us? Back to gardening just a little bit. After all, that's what you have to do with a lot of plants, isn't it? If you want your rose to continue to flower all season, you have to cut it. If you want your tree to be healthy, you have to break off some branches. If you want to be healthy in your spiritual life, you need to be willing and you need to ask for God to reach in and break off those branches, those dead weights that are weighing you down and keeping you back to bring you away from the edge. To maybe, instead of when you hit that zenith from going down, just keep level. Maybe you'll have another zenith farther up, which I know technically isn't the definition of a zenith, but anyway. God, I know I am not perfect. I know I've made mistakes. Help me find those mistakes and break them. Break them out of me, even if it hurts a whole lot. I will note, and I realize this, this is one of those downer Sundays. It's a downer sermon. I get it. It's not a happy one. And Lord knows I picked a rainy day for it as well. Anyway, I will remind you that there is one other person who is pretty severely broken in the scriptures. Peter. Peter denies Christ the three times. He hears the cock crow and he realizes his mistake and he is so ashamed he runs and hides. When you reach, read into the Old Testament, the Old Testament is always full of extremes. It was a book of extremes. But we see just a little bit better in the story of Peter that reminder that there's often little ones. And even after Peter denies and is broken and runs away, he repents and he comes back. The door is always open. The break may hurt in the moment, but it heals over. And the rose continues to bloom. So, go out. Be willing to let God examine. Be willing to be broken. Be willing to come back. Be willing to bloom again. Amen.